going to be in Zechariah 9 this morning. What page? In the key Bible. In 1 Peter 2.11, as the Apostle tried to encourage followers of Jesus to live a certain way in keeping with the life and teaching of their Savior and King, he called them sojourners and exiles. We have real-life examples of what exiles and refugees are because our world is full of them. From various countries torn apart by ceaseless wars and other violence. For example, in December of 1979, after a series of civil conflicts and military coups in Afghanistan, the Soviet Union invaded Kabul to secure a socialist regime that would be friendly to the Soviets. In the course of that nine-year conflict, over two million Afghans lost their lives, and millions more were displaced becoming exiles and refugees as they spread across Europe and the rest of the world. In 2001, America became entangled with Afghanistan when we discovered their involvement in aiding and assisting Osama bin Laden's devastating attack on the World Trade Center towers in New York City and the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. Between the Soviet invasion, the American occupation, and various other situations, Afghanistan has been in some form of armed conflict for over 40 years now. As a result, over 4.5 million Afghan people still reside outside of Afghanistan, with 2.7 million of them living as registered refugees in various countries, including our own. And some have resigned themselves to their new lives in these new places, though they still cling to their heritage, religion, and traditions. Many of them still hold on to that hope that someday they will be able to return to their homes and their homeland. And all that to say this, most of us understand what the term exile means. The question is, do we really grasp why Peter used that word to describe those who followed Jesus? Do we fully comprehend what it means for us to be exiles right here where we live? Can we come to terms with the way it not only defines us, but guides the way in which we should live in and interact with the world around us, even the culture that we live in? As we dig into this morning's passage, it would benefit us to keep this idea of being an exile in mind. Because that's the backdrop of what was going on when Zechariah wrote these words. So follow along with me, if you will. We're going to read in Zechariah 9, beginning in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. 
As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day the Lord their God will save them, as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. <coughs> okay. As we pick up the story here in Zechariah, it had been almost... 20 years since the Persian king Cyrus the Great had issued a decree allowing the Jews in his empire to return home to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and specifically the temple. This is after their uh, destruction and exile. These are the exiles finally coming home. The story of their return and the troubles that arose during the time are recounted in the book of, uh, books of Ezra and Nehemiah. In fact, in Ezra 5.1, Zechariah himself is mentioned as a prophet by name. Well, shortly after several waves of Jews had returned, work began on the temple. The foundation was laid, and there was a sense of hope in the air that God was finally going to deliver them and bring them back as a people and reestablish them and all of that. But neighboring governors who did not want Jerusalem to eclipse them and rise to prominence as a more viable and desirable trade route option, discouraged and then sabotaged the work, bringing everything to a standstill. And this dragged on for almost 20 years. The temple remained vacant. There was no widespread revival among the people as God had promised through the former prophets. And as a result, the people grew increasingly discouraged. God seemed absent. Promises seemed like foolish fantasies, and everything seemed to have been placed on hold indefinitely. As a result, many began to think faithful obedience was useless, that following Yahweh and trusting in his promises was pointless, that they may as well live their best life while they could. And this was the situation when Zechariah was given his prophecy. There was no king no kingdom, and the people had very little hope. But Zechariah had been called to remind the people of the Lord's promises, specifically his promise of a king and a kingdom. And as we process this series of events, what parallels exist in our own lives? Well, none of us have ever been enslaved in a foreign country, I don't think. Uh, only to come home and experience what seems like the absence of God. 
but I'm pretty sure most of us have gone through some dark times in our lives and felt as though the Lord was distant or absent from us. So we can at least begin to identify with some of the thoughts and emotions the Jews were having during this time, and the reason they might begin to have some hope in a new king and kingdom. And as we dig into this text, we find a fascinating description of this king who would come, the king that was being promised to them. After using a parallel for emphasis, calling on Zion and then Jerusalem to rejoice and shout aloud at his coming, Zechariah began with a familiar ideal, king would be righteous and would bring salvation to the people. In other words, he would deliver them from the kingdom of their oppressors and establish them as their own independent nation. That was the idea that they had. But strangely, this king would not ride into town victoriously on the back of a war horse, but would ride in humbly on the colt of a donkey which would have been very unlike any king they would have known. Kings aren't typically humble, first of all, and they don't really have to be, right? But this king was going to be different. There was a good bit of symbolism going on in him riding on the colt of a donkey. It would, be, it would necessarily remind them of the story of Balaam, the prophet, who rode on a donkey and then uttered a blessing over Israel three separate times. And in this case, there would be another set of three things. We'll come back to that in just a moment. A donkey would also be known for its peaceful innocence and would serve as a sign that this king and kingdom would not be like the others, that the king would not be violent and that the kingdom would not be established by military or political power. Which brings us back to the set of three things Zechariah mentioned concerning this king. Three things that would be cut off in this king's reign. The chariot from Ephraim, which is the northern kingdom of Israel after they separated. The war horse from Jerusalem, which separated, which was the southern sort of thing. And then the battle bow. So the chariot, the war horse, and the battle bow. Each of these is a matter of violence and war. The northern and southern areas of Israel's kingdom are included in a manner suggesting unity as they parallel each other here. And a third line is included to emphasize something deeper about this dramatic change. That there were three things would have drawn the, the people that were hearing Zechariah, the audience that he had, to the concept of divine harmony and completeness. That's what the number three sort of symbolized in their thinking, divine harmony and completeness. In other words, this king would complete all of this without violence or war and would do so as a result of God's personal divine interaction. So has that happened? Has God's kingdom come and will have been done on earth as it is in heaven? There are a lot of people that would say no. They would point to the violence and war that continues unabated since those ancient days, like what's going on in Afghanistan and other places. But in truth, the answer is yes. The chariot and war horse and battle bow have been cut off. Here's how. When Jesus came, 
he accomplished everything he was sent to do, including establishing his kingdom, the foundations of what would become his kingdom, without going to war or violently overthrowing his enemies. He didn't raise an army and try to overpower Rome or Herod's reign in, in Judah. <clears throat> he showed up humble, riding the colt of a donkey, and laid down his life. He was crucified. He died and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again, defeating sin and death and the grave, our biggest enemies. Then he ascended his throne as king. The king has come, and his kingdom has been established. And the values of Jesus and his kingdom, they're not in a closet somewhere awaiting the end of days. They are in a reality in the hearts and minds of his people right now. Because we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to be loving, forgiving, merciful, full of grace, just like Jesus. And even though we aren't perfect at these things, we are stumbling forward toward them, toward being who God promised we would be. Now, I don't know if any of you have seen this, but there are some people on social media right now saying that being sheep hasn't gotten us anywhere and it's time to be lions. Never mind that this mixes the metaphors of lambs and lions and sheep and wolves. Never mind that. <laughs> Do you know what the New Testament has to say about us being like lions? <clears throat> Nothing. Nothing at all. There are only a few passages about lions. Uh, one refers to the devil prowling like a lion, seeking who he may devour. Uh, and then the others refer to Jesus being the lion of Judah, right? That's it. And there's a reason for that. We are not supposed to be taking things by force. We are supposed to be giving ourselves in love like Jesus did. Because that's how his kingdom becomes a reality on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus does speak peace to the nations. Through his life and through the Holy Spirit in us. His rule is from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth because wherever you find believers, his kingdom is among them. And so it's global. It's bigger than any other kingdom. Now at this point, Zechariah reached back into the Torah to bring out examples and parallels. And he began by mentioning the blood of the covenant. And this has a very specific meaning. Not only... The promise the Lord made to Abraham, but the blood covenant the Israelites agreed to when they entered the promised land. And we find this in Exodus 24, 3 through 8, where the covenant is confirmed by the people. When Moses stated the terms and all Israel agreed to them, he sprinkled them with the blood of a sacrifice, all the people. And this was a reminder of the Passover, where blood covered them and saved them from the plague of death. It was to be moving forward, a constant reminder of that sort of thing. It was also a normal form of making a covenant in the ancient world. 
It was a contract bound in blood, which basically meant if I break this covenant, may I be broken and spilled out like this animal sacrifice. But it also looked forward to Jesus, whose sacrificial blood would establish an entirely new covenant with his people as he covers us. And in all three of these things, we again find divine completion and harmony at work. Following the blood of the covenant, Zechariah said that the king would rescue the people from the waterless pit. And again, this isn't just some casual reference, it's specific. It's a call back to the story of Joseph's brothers throwing him into a waterless pit and selling him into slavery only for him to rescue them on the other side of it. Because what they meant for evil, the Lord intended for good. In other words, things may seem bad, but this will not be the end of the road. Darkness will not have the last word. Even in the middle of it, there is still hope that the Lord will come through and bring good from bad. This was still the Lord's plan. Only now we look back and see it in the cross and in the empty tomb where Jesus' own people sold him out only for him to rescue everyone from sin and death on the other side. Now, Zechariah couldn't have fully understood that. He was just getting pieces of imagery about all this. He was declaring this message to the people of his day to encourage them to lean into the hardship they faced knowing that there was goodness in remaining faithful in spite of the circumstances. But in addition, he saw a blessing on its way, a blessing of double restoration, a hope beyond hope in what the Lord would do for his people. So even though he didn't fully grasp what he was seeing, every inch of this prophetic poem by Zechariah points to Christ and what he did and how he did it. In the middle of this, Zechariah used a fascinating phrase to give the people an idea of how they might approach their lives in such a time. I think it might apply to us as well. He called them prisoners of hope, which is such an interesting concept. Zechariah was speaking to a people who had endured slavery and forced servitude. He knew the suffering they had experienced. But not only did he announce their freedom from the pit of slavery and servitude, he called them to gather in their stronghold as prisoners of hope. He's basically saying Jerusalem and the temple would be rebuilt and would once again be a place of refuge. That regardless of what seemed to be going on, they should hold on to their faith because this was all only temporary. And that brings up some questions as well. All of us have gone through dark and difficult situations of some sort or other. Each of us has experienced sorrow and despair. And in the middle of all that, do we understand that none of it is permanent? That our pain and suffering is only temporary? That just because we go through hardships doesn't mean God has forsaken us. He will never leave us or forsake us doesn't mean the Lord has walked away and left us to our fate. 
And I'm not talking about having doubts. Y'all know I've confessed I have doubts, right? We all do. But I'm talking about which voice are we listening to? Are we listening to the voice in our head that tells us it's all for nothing? Or the voice in our head that tells us to hold on until the dawn breaks? Until the sun comes up and we can see everything for what it really is? This is exactly what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we find this echoed in 2 Peter 1, 19, where he wrote, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. We are not prisoners without hope. We are not eternally stuck in the situation that we are presently in, whatever that may be. Whatever our circumstances are, they are only temporary. Well, that doesn't mean they aren't painful and that we don't truly suffer through them. The reality is that they will not last. Like the darkness of the darkest night, they will fade in the light of the morning sun. As Bishop Desmond Tutu once said, hope is being able to see that there is light despite all the darkness. And this is where we come back around to the idea of being exiles in this world. We've talked about it so many times before, the world is full of chaos and darkness. There's violence and war and broken people hurting others and things like COVID and cancer that continue to take people's lives because they've yet to be cured. When it comes to all the terrible things in the world that reinforce the darkness around us, there seem to be far many, far too many things to list. But the dawn has come. Light is shining. The King has come. Jesus Christ has died and risen again. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. We have been given the Holy Spirit. So there is hope. Even in the midst of our sorrows, there is hope. Even as we suffer the loss of those we love, there is hope. Even when we turn away from the Lord and make choices that lead us into captivity, there is still hope. Even when we face situations that seem impossible, there is hope. As exiles in this world, we are not a people without hope. We are the only ones who know what hope really is. And this is what Paul was talking about in Romans 8, 24 through 25, when he said, For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And patience is the key to this whole thing. Our hope is patient. It looks beyond what we can see in the moment to the deliverance that we trust is coming. Zechariah described that deliverance as an arrow. But this is very different than the battle bow and other weapons 
of war described previously. This arrow is something else entirely. In verse 13, he listed Judah as the bow and Ephraim as the arrow. These are people groups. And then in verse 14, Zechariah said the Lord would appear over them and that his arrow would go forth like lightning, which is dramatic imagery, right? This arrow comes from people groups, which means it's about a person. And this passage is about the coming king who would be a person. So when we see this arrow flash forth like lightning, when the Lord appears, that's about a person too. It's clearly about Jesus. He was the arrow of the Lord. The promised king they were waiting for is the king who arrived and provided rescue and salvation for all people. The king who set his kingdom in motion and then took his throne. What Zacharias saw in a vivid, metaphoric way was the arrival of Jesus as the Christ, the chosen one who would be king and set all things right and establish the kingdom of God once and for all. And he has. We can't see it because we keep looking for it in the stuff of the world, but it's in our hearts and in the hearts of other believers, and it's in the hope we share for the world that will be, the world that is becoming. In verse 15, Zechariah described a people roaring as if drummed, full like a bowl and drenched like the corners of the altar. What a crazy image he must have seen, right? But if we look at this through the lens of Jesus, it begins to make sense, this sort of vivid, moving painting that Zechariah is showing us. Because after Jesus arrived as king, when did these things take place, right? Well, look closely at the image being painted here. They aren't in chronological order like we might prefer, so it's easy to misunderstand. But paintings typically aren't in chronological order. They're just paintings, right? They have lots of things going on. If we think through them in terms of the events surrounding Jesus, we discover the people drenched like the corners of the altar are those covered by Jesus' sacrificial blood because that's what covers the corners of an altar. And then we see the full bowl and the roaring as though drunk become a reality at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell like fire and the apostles went out proclaiming the gospel and everyone thought they were drunk because they were full of the Holy Spirit. In verse 16, Zechariah claimed that on that day the Lord their God would save them. And as we have seen before, the day of the Lord can mean one day or a series of days or a period of time. It doesn't just mean a 24-hour literal day. It's a term of time. From the arrival of Jesus to his death, burial, and resurrection, then his ascension to the throne and the coming of the Holy Spirit, that period of time is the great day of the Lord. The day when everything was laid bare and Yahweh's judgment was poured out on sin. The day when the curtain of the temple was torn in half and the temple itself became of no use because we became the temples of the 
Holy Spirit. The day when the Lord finally established and began building his kingdom in our hearts. Do we believe it? Do we trust in Jesus and lean into the chaos and suffering around us? Not because we enjoy that. Not because we accept it. Not because we want it. But because we know that what was meant for evil in this world, the Lord has meant for good. That our hope is not in these things, but in the Lord. And we echo what we read in Psalm 20, verse 7. As some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Because we certainly seem to look in a lot of places other than the Lord for these things. But look at how Zechariah ended this prophetic poem. In verses 16 through 17, he spoke of the Lord saving his people and the people shining on the land. Then he mentioned grain and wine making the people flourish. And once again, we see the prophet looking back to the bread and wine of Passover and looking forward to something new. And this came full circle when Jesus told the disciples that the bread and wine of Passover was now the new covenant in his body and blood. In ancient times, bread and wine were the most basic form of nourishment. And this is true in Christ as well. He is our bread and wine. He is our nourishment. He is what gives us life. He is why we celebrate in the hope that we have, which means that this entire passage has already become a reality because of Jesus. All the things they were looking forward to, we find in him and through him. So rejoice greatly. Shout aloud. King has come. He is righteous and brings salvation and deliverance. Our hope has moved forward from the coming of this king to his return when all will be brought to its rightful completion. Which means there is still hope. Hope for a new kind of world that we can be a part of right here and now. Longing for and working toward a new kind of world necessarily means we are not at home in this one. Not the way it is now. We are moving toward a new Jerusalem that we will share with our king and all the other citizens of the kingdom. So as prisoners of hope, we are not only looking ahead to what has been promised, but we work to bring it about through the power of the Holy Spirit within us even in the middle of all the darkness around us. We don't join with the darkness. We live our lives as mirrors reflecting the light of Jesus. Because like him, we don't belong in this world the way it is. We don't fit with its ways. We don't follow its methods. We continue to live as exiles in this world until the Lord returns because that is our calling as his people. Will you pray with me?